Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome back to Add Passion and Stir. It's our weekly conversation about food, passion, and making a difference in the world. And today we have a super special guest, uh, a dear friend of Debbie and mine since 1984, the singer-songwriter Carol King. Carol, welcome from Idaho to Add Passion and Stir. Well, so nice to be with you, Billy. It's been a long time since we saw each other and, um, you know, I hope everybody's well and, uh, you know, Debbie and your, and Roe Ro and, you know, your kids and everybody, but it's great to be with you. I love you. Well, uh, we, we, we love you too. And Hi, Debbie. Hello. Just so good to hear that voice. Oh, Talking thanks. We're singing. Yes. And, you know, we've got these common roots, uh, Debbie and I, and you, Carol, in, um, uh, uh, an, af- an effort to be activists to try and make the world a better place. We actually met during Gary Hart's presidential campaign in 1984. It might have been in 1983. You were one of the very first uh, people to support him, to travel the country for him, to perform and help raise money. And I know you were doing it before him and you've been doing it a long time after, but um, there's always been such a powerful element of you using your music and talent and celebrity uh, as a platform to, to make a difference in the world. And um, Share Our Strength was in many ways born of, I think, those same uh, impulses, except Debbie and I didn't have any of your talent, <laughs> nor, 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 nor celebrity. Uh, yeah, and we don't want Debbie to sing. But, um, so, but before we talk about that, which is one of the things I want to talk about, because this podcast is always about how people are, are literally sharing their strength to, to make a difference. Um, before we talk about how you've used it that way, uh, we can't talk to you without talking about the music itself um, and just the impact you've had on all of our lives and just what it's meant to you. And I know Debbie uh, just, Debbie would like to, this whole podcast to just be about your music <laughs> but we'll we'll at least make some of it about your music, and yeah, we should say, uh, yeah. for folks that that don't know it, and I think almost everybody does, that uh, for a lot of people, your music came back in a big way with uh, the Broadway musical, beautiful, the Carol King musical, which was six years uh, on Broadway, and so many people, um, not that they'd ever fallen out of touch, but reconnected in another way with uh, your artistry uh, through beautiful, the Carol King musical. But anyhow, Deb, I know you want to get into the music. Go. Well, uh, you know, as Billy said, there's just so much to cover between all of your, your work in politics, Carol, and your just incredible career. So I just kind of try to prioritize a couple of my questions about the music. And, you know, I was um, reading the lyrics to Will You Love Me Tomorrow? And I'm not even sure if the real name is Will You Still Love Me or Will You Love Me Tomorrow? You can clear that up. But um, at the age yeah, of 17, you wrote that and first sung by the Shirelles and countless right, others followed them yeah. by you, which what I would argue was by far the best version. But as I listened to the lyrics of this song, this love song, uh, I was struck by, I guess, m- the maturity, uh, if that's the right word. Uh, and I was thinking, I was trying to think way back to, you know, I was young and in love, but more recently, my daughter, my teenage daughter, uh, who's been in love. And I was thinking like, how would a 17 year old you know, even think about whether love would last. So that just struck me as something really interesting. So I wanted to know from you, like, what was behind that song? And uh, why were you thinking about at such an early age if love would last? Well, I wasn't, actually. It was Jerry Goffin. 
a man three years older than I, so he was 20, and he is who wrote the lyric, but he had the ability, he, he is now deceased, he passed away in 2014, and we haven't been married for years, he was my husband, yep. not, when we wrote the song, yes, we were married when, when we wrote the song, we were married very young, and uh, he just had this ability to get inside the head of a woman when he was writing a song. He wrote the lyrics to Natural Woman. He wrote the lyrics to Will You Love Me Tomorrow. He wrote the lyrics to a song I didn't write, which was Saving All My Love For You, which I think was Whitney Houston. Mm-hmm. Um, so the answer to your question is I didn't. I didn't really start writing lyrics until later. But, you know, I... I, I loved singing what he wrote and our, it's funny that you brought up uh, the musical beautiful because that has come up again. It's currently in my life in the sense that they're, uh, they're going to make a movie, not out of the musical, but a different focus on that part of my life. And I've been, you know, looking at the script and working on it and consulting and all that stuff, along with my daughter, Sherry, who is my manager, Sherry Condor. And so I'm back in that time period again. And what, thinking, what year does Beautiful go Well, it go covers, I think it starts when I'm 16 and I'm first going into the city to try to sell my songs before I met Jerry, but it's a a quick scene. And then it's really about me and Jerry mostly. And then my subsequent life after we divorced, but early young when I was just, you know, recording tapestry. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And they've, they've actually come up with a lovely different structure. It's not a musical, it's a film. And I, I'm so, but I'm so involved in, in, in thinking about that and how, what my life was my life. Everybody has a life. Everybody has a story. And I think, you know, we'll get into that as we talk about our, our causes, but just the idea that I was living my life and I happened to have a gift for music and I happened to meet and, you know, hook up with in every way, a person who was so gifted at lyrics and, you know, but for that circumstance, who knows, you know, right, I was right. just doing my thing, which I can take you to the the passion. I can segue to that um, because I moved to, not because anybody says I have to, but sure, sure. Um, I got involved with uh, the environmental movement. Uh, I think after the Gary Hart campaign. So I actually met you before that I did meet you in 1983. I, mm-hmm. The circumstances were, you you were I think you were Gary's chief of staff. Am I right, Billy? Well, I was kind of like his uh, body guy. You know, I was his, his on the road chief of staff. I traveled with him everywhere and coordinated with our our campaign manager uh, back at headquarters. So my job was to always be with him and you know be his kind of uh, counselor on the road. As as you were very good at, and I have often thought as I watched share our strength, begin and grow and become this force for like feeding people um, and and all the other side things that we can talk about that, that are, you know, connected to the issue of hunger. But I've often thought, what if Gary had won? 
<laughs> you would you would be working in the White House and maybe share our strength never would have been formed. But on the other hand, you would have made sure this issue and many others were addressed from the White House. So it's just funny to think about how life does things well, and makes well, you do things. Yeah. Well, you know, when you, when you say that, Carol, one of the things that I know that for Gary um, has been, uh, you know, a source of pride and satisfaction is that although he didn't win and we, of course, wanted to win, there were so many people in his orbit who and in people who were inspired by him that went on to do uh, because they couldn't do it in, in the White House. They went on to do it in other ways. So Alan Casey, co-founding City Year, uh, and uh, Kathy Bushkin, who you probably remember uh, yes. becoming the you know president of the UN Foundation. Um, others who did get involved in politics. John Emerson became our ambassador to Germany uh, under President Obama, and uh, Jeannie Shaheen, who you've I know supported and helped in enormous ways, uh, governor and then senator from New Hampshire. So there were a lot of folks in, in the heart world who I, I think, you know, as devastating as it was, the how suddenly his his campaign ended, said, I'm going to find other ways to make a difference. And, and they did that. But, you know, I, I have thought sometimes about exactly what you just said, which it, it turned out the other way. There wouldn't be a share of strength. Hopefully we would have still done some other pretty great things, though. It, it, it says so much about both, um, you know, that he inspired us, I think, even more than we even realized at the time to, you know, kind of come up with and listen to that voice inside and follow those those passions, but also just the power of getting involved in a campaign. I think those two things together and maybe our, our youth at the time, too, contributed to that. Absolutely. I think all of that. And Carol, I was so interested to hear you talking about uh, being involved in, in the, the movie uh, slice of uh, be- Beautiful or the movie inspired by Beautiful. And one of the things I was going to ask you, I was going to kind of save it towards the end, but I feel like it just kind of came up naturally, which is uh, I was going to ask about how you continue to um, uh, honor your creative juices, right? You've been such a creative person all your life, I mean, for, for many years, and now you're involved in a, an incredibly important creative project in terms of this movie. Um, do you do you feel a uh, kind of like a, almost like a perpetual pressure to continue to create? Or does it's it just happen a, when it happens? It's not a pressure. It's um, it's more, it's kind of, I'm an instrument. Honestly, in my music, I've always felt like an instrument. The lyrics I write, uh, you know, I, I feel like I'm the instrument. And so um, I've written, I wrote a memoir, you know, about my life earlier. Uh, it took me 12 years to write it. Um, because I have so much going on, but it was out and it became a bestseller. And I was like, you know, I, I, I was just an instrument. I, I am a writer. I have to write. I am an instrument for conveying thoughts and ideas. And interestingly, working in Congress, with Congress, which, um, you know, you you. I had mentioned my environmental work, and I know you wanted to get to that. That is the one area. I am still an instrument, and I am still a conveyor, a communicator of ideas, and, and persu- you know, I'm, I do persuasion, and I do education when I meet with members of Congress and their staff or people, talk to people about the issue. But basically, since I moved to Idaho, uh, which was 1977, I guess I got involved in this effort 
to protect the Northern Rockies ecosystem in 1989. And that's what I've been advocating for specifically because there are larger issues, you know, and there are big organizations working on that. But the grassroots folks out in Idaho, Montana, Oregon, Washington, and Wyoming, because the bill overlaps five states, it's a really heavy lift because you have to get 10 senators, you know, and, and you have to get all the people in the different districts of the state. And it mostly affects the eastern areas of Washington and Oregon and western Wyoming. And it basically takes all the areas that are called roadless areas, which describes them as well, that Bill Clinton tried to protect with a an executive uh, initiative, a rule, the roadless rule. But it had loopholes and it was problematic. And what we're trying to do with this bill, the Northern Rockies, Ecosystem Protection Act is take those roadless areas that are left because they keep being logged or otherwise developed, and then they're no longer roadless or eligible, but take the remaining roadless areas and have them protected as wilderness. And one last thing, I won't stay on this too long, but that bill was written by scientists back in the late 80s. I've been advocating for it since the early 90s in Congress. So this is like almost, it's about 30 years. And today, this bill is as valid as ever when it comes to protecting the species and their habitat. But climate change, it's 23 million acres of our national forests owned by all of us. Think of the carbon stored by those living trees and the water they protect by just being there living instead of fields of clear cuts. So that's my pitch. Well, well, you know, I want you to add to the pitch and I was going to ask you to paint a little picture for us, not in terms that you would use in congressional testimony, but, you know, telling Billy and Debbie who haven't been to the Northern Rockies, just why? What, What do you love about it so much? Well, I love that you are, first of all, I live in a town that is, you know, surrounded by nature and is based on a ski resort, which is sort of an adaptation of nature. But all around the town where we live, there are beautiful, unspoiled land. And some of it is, you know, a national forest. And when I'm in there, when I am among those trees, if I'm in a forest or just even near one, I just take so much joy from the proximity to nature. It is intrinsically, if you take out the economic value or the climate value, it is intrinsically heartwarming. It nourishes us. And many of us who live in urban areas have pieces of nature Debbie, we were talking about D.C. There's some beautiful places in in D.C. The rivers, you know, and the parks are there, but there are fewer. This is like, this ecosystem is a vast, you cannot even picture 23 million acres. It's about 7 million acres bigger than the entire state of South Carolina to pick a random state. (laughs) So that's what it means. That's what it means. And it's dwindling and we have less and less and less of that. And once we uh, develop it, we don't get it back in its pristine, really wild nature formula. Form. Does it have a better chance of passing in this administration than it's, than it's had? What, what are the chances for that? 
I think the 50-50 reduces the odds, but you never know. Uh, we haven't introduced uh, Carolyn Maloney of New York, um, has introduced it since 1993. It was introduced by a congressman before her, but then he he wasn't reelected. And so she has carried it in the House. And since 2016, I guess, uh, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse has carried it in the Senate, and we believe it's going to be introduced shortly, but I don't have a date yet. You know, I'm still thinking about 30 Just years. getting it out is what I'm saying. Right. And, and how many new members that you've had to keep talking to, you know, over 30 years? Well, there's that. There's the new yeah. new people. When right. I was literally going to Congress, I have somebody that works with me who interacts, you know, on a more regular basis. But yeah, you have to reintroduce it every two years in yeah. both the House and the Senate. And that's the stage we are in in the Senate right now. But as I said, by the time this airs, it may be introduced. And, and if it did become law, the uh, protection would be as about as eternal as could be, right? I mean, this would forever protect this property to the extent I would, that you can. I, use, I would not use the word forever because nothing is forever. Nothing's but forever. Wilderness protection in Congress is as permanent protection as you can get, but Congress has to do it. So, for example, President Biden could uh, proclaim it a national monument, and that would be terrific. But that, uh, as as we saw, really wonderful national monuments were unproclaimed by the prior administration. So, Carol, you've been in Idaho, I think you said, since the 70s, 40 years. Uh, and what first took you there? Why Idaho instead of Colorado or Montana or other places? And just like what took you there and what what did you feel when you got there? I, I think circumstances. I did actually uh, drive, you know, with my then boyfriend. I guess we were married after we got to Idaho, but um, we drove to Colorado. We drove to Montana. We drove to Utah. We just we were driving around to see what worked. And something about he was from Idaho. He was born in eastern Idaho. And um, so, you know, when we got to Idaho, something about... I can still feel it to this day. The landscape doesn't really change between Nevada and Utah, uh, and I'm sorry, Nevada and Idaho. But as soon as I get to the area just before Hollister, which is one of the southernmost parts of Idaho where, where you cross in from Nevada, I just feel something in me relaxes. I don't know why this is, but I do have a profound connection that I don't know where it comes from, but I do have it. Carol, when, when you were further out in, I think you called it Chalice, um, yes. near the river, what, yes. your nearest neighbor was how close or far? Um, one really was isolated? about two miles and one was about four miles. We, were, we had no nearest neighbors except those of us who lived in different houses on the property. There was a, a main lodge that was where I lived until uh, at one point after my kids were grown and I wasn't married anymore, I moved into a little cabin right over the creek. So that's where I wanted to be. Wow. You, you couldn't get more opposite from Manhattan, right? <laughs> wherever you grew up in New York. Wherever you right. And I love both yeah. for different reasons. We always acknowledge those who help us produce the podcast, but I also want to make sure that I acknowledge those who make it possible. We are so grateful to our leading partner, City, and the incredible generosity that they've displayed since the coronavirus pandemic began. 
city and the city foundation stepped up in a big way throughout this entire year they contributed over nine million dollars in 2020 through creative projects like a two million dollar match and a consumer activated donation program around giving tuesday we're so grateful for that strong partnership and city has been a partner since 2014 we are grateful for their continued support. Yeah. And Carol, for people who uh, don't know as much about the Northern Rockies ecosystem uh, or the Northern Rockies Ecosystem Protection Act, what's the best way for them to learn? Are there other environmental organizations who are the most uh, at the forefront of championing this? Uh, how can people learn more? Is there a website? Yes, the, the, uh, a group called Alliance for the Wild Rockies, and that is the website, allianceforthewildrockies.org, is where you can learn everything about the bill, and you can take action. They can tell you how to call your senator or your, you know, your, it's really your senators and your representative, your two senators and your representative. And, you know, weigh in with them through email, and even if you're not uh you know, they often don't take it if you're not from their state. So if you know people in their state, that's the thing is to try to make it state specific so that if you are from a state, even if it's not one of those affected states, if you live in another random state, Michigan, that those are the representatives you'd be in touch with and you'd be in touch with Senators uh, Peters and my brain is freezing. Who is the other Senator from Michigan? And I'm, I'm uh, Debbie Stabenow. Debbie Stabenow, yeah. Debbie Stabenow a yeah. good friend, actually. So, Debbie, forgive me. <laughs> but yes, so that's a, that is a um, that is how you do it. You find out who your senators are. Carol, between the work you've done uh, advocating for and lobbying for the Northern Rockies Ecosystem Protection Act, and the efforts you've made on behalf of raising money for candidates performing. Uh, really giving of yourself, what uh, what would you say you've learned about politics, kind of the good, the bad, and the ugly? Or, ha or, or has there been the good, the bad, and the ugly? Or has it just been one or the other? Okay, one, yes, there is the good, the bad, and the ugly. The ugly seem to have taken a firm hold over the last four years, but yes. And uh, I would add that, that that can be construed as political, but I think we just look at the rise of just... Hatred is, is, you know, I know that hate is a feeling and it's genuine and people feel it, but the way it's been misused and abused by so many people in politics is, you know, ugly. But there has always been, there have always been both in our human nature. And I, I, the reason I support the people I do is because I I sense their goodness and they may not always do everything that I would want them to do or I might not agree with them, but I sense the goodness in the people that I work with and I I try to make sure that I know or at least have had a conversation with somebody to understand really what that person is about and feel that goodness. Um, and so that's part of what drives me to do this. and. You know, I, I, I want to encourage love and I want to encourage civil discourse. I don't mind if we have a disagreement about tax policy, but I want the reasons 
to be, what you really think is best for the people, what will help people. And for example, when I hear people say, um, oh, you know, well, if we help all the people at the top, it's going to trickle down and everybody at the bottom. And if we don't help the people at the top, people are going to lose their jobs. That is total BS and it's total talking points. And it frustrates me no end that so many people just take that at face value. Well, I love to hear you say that, you know, they don't have to agree with you on everything because that's a very reasonable point of view, which is, to some degree has gone out of fashion in a lot of Washington today where there's, uh, you know, almost a, a litmus test that you've got to agree on everything. Um, so uh, I, I hope that philosophy kind of takes hold. And I, I was going to ask you because there's, there's, I'm sure there's not enough Carol King to go around. You get asked to help a lot of candidates, I'm sure. How do you, how do you decide? Um, well, one of the things, I mean, I, I, for example, I, Carolyn Maloney and I did not know each other when she took on this bill, but we got to be friends. I came to New York often. I am, you know, a native New Yorker. And I, she would take me with her on her rounds for various things. And so I, I would do anything for that woman. She is the essence of goodness and trying to make it different, not trying. She has done so much and her vision, she's still pushing for the equal rights amendment. And it's been how many years for that, but she just never gives up. She is indomitable and she is strong and I love her and I respect her. But then if I start doing things for other house members, it's like there's, you know, a few more than the majority of Democrats right now. How do I do something for all of them? So I kind of have to, you know, limit it to kind of doing something for the entire caucus. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I, I have to make judgments like that and other, other cases. It's just, I'm always making judgments and I'm trying to be fair and honorable. And also uh, people with whom I have an affinity is is helpful. I, I just can't explain it. You want to talk more music, don't you, Debbie? Would love to. I want to talk Debbie. hunger. We, we got to talk hunger too. too. Yes. Too. Well, well, you know, uh, the, I was just going to say, um, you know, as we kind of wrap up the political part and move into the hunger space, just this, what I've been thinking about so much is this, um, you know, this razor close Georgia election that gave, you know, Democrats, uh, not the majority, but, you know, 50-50. And because of that, this, you know, bill that, that Biden has put out, the relief bill, and this most consequential piece of legislation for uh, hunger that we've seen in our lifetime that will affect kids and their families. And just the importance of, you know, when you hear people say, like, the votes really matter and, you know, do I really need to get out and vote, which is you hear that all the time. And there are a lot of close elections out there. But, you know, I don't know how many people pay that much attention to these close state and Senate races. And that one was just incredibly important. So, um, you know, that legislation is going to be just incredibly important for families and kids uh, as it adds, you know, an economic relief to to poor families. Absolutely. The, the, you know, the, the pandemic really uh, created some, uh, I think, interesting paradoxes uh, for our work. Uh, in, in one sense, it reversed almost 10 years of progress. We, we were at a point 10, uh, you know, 10 years ago where we had begun an effort to 
enroll all the kids in school breakfast who needed to be in school breakfast to make sure that SNAP benefits were available to families that needed it. We'd, we'd make progress ac- across almost every metric. Uh, and in fact, just you know, 14, 15 months ago, shortly before the pandemic began, uh, childhood hunger, certainly, and what the our government measures as very low food security, which they equate to kids missing meals, was at its lowest level you know, in history, certainly its lowest level in, you know, the 30 preceding years. And the pandemic wiped all that away. And we've seen these tremendous uh, lines at food banks and uh, this enormous increase in families that need SNAP uh, food stamp benefits. So on, on the one hand, it had that devastating effect. On the other hand, though, and this is kind of the paradox, I think it's underscored something that we've always believed at Share Our Strength, that this is a solvable problem, that we have the food and we have the food resources and we have the food programs in this country to solve it. And one of the things that's actually made it more solvable is in the earliest days of the pandemic, uh, as we were talking about Congress, you know, the good, the bad and the ugly and how Congress behaves sometimes, Congress did something that, you know, I had never seen them do, which is uh, they listened to us immediately. And when we said we need flexibilities and waivers from current law and the room and the space to feed kids in alternative ways. We need you to change the law to permit us to do that. Uh, they immediately acted and did that. That was you know, the, the intensity of, of, of fear uh, in the early days of this pandemic was that we've got to act and if we make mistakes, we make mistakes. And we've now learned about all of these new ways that we can feed kids and families that it doesn't have to be just one meal at a time at school. We can actually deliver meals to kids' homes, and we can deliver multiple meals. And when I say we, I mean the partners and the network of community organizations that we work with. So it's been kind of paradoxical in that sense, because I think many of those flexibilities will remain in place. And when we get to the other side of this pandemic, which hopefully is sooner rather than later, um, we'll have a much broader base of support for our anti-hunger work than we've ever had before. Literally, Carol, we've had hundreds of thousands of new first-time donors uh, come to share our strength in the No Kid Hungry campaign, uh, more than 20,000 of whom said, I want to be a sustaining donor. I want to give you my credit card and deduct, you know, $19.95 every month so that I can be part of this effort and, and see it through. So it's been remarkable. And then, and then the other paradox has been as intense as the hunger issue has been, uh, I feel like our stakeholders have also said this pandemic and a lot of what we've seen around race equity issues and uh, a lot of the uh, attention to race issues after the, the George Floyd killing. Uh, so many Americans have said, we've actually got to get to the root causes of why people are hungry in the first place. So yes, we want you to use our money to feed kids, but we also want you to start to think about how do we support moms and families and strengthen their households so that they don't need this type of food assistance in the first place. So I I come out of this kind of optimistic that we're going to make great progress on this issue. To me, it's always been the most solvable issue that, that, that we face because we have no shortage of food in this country. And, uh, you know, voices like yours and others, uh, and the support of, of, of you and many others, uh, have helped us get to a place where I think we're going to be able to, uh, solve hunger. Billy, and would you, would you agree that the window is probably not, you know, really wide. I mean, I think there's urgency and everything that you just said that we are um, 
you know, seizing the moment, if you will, especially as we look at some of the causes and consequences of hunger while people are thinking about it, while Congress has, um, you know, going to authorize some of these some of these supports for families. So I feel like, you know, yes, everybody's going to realize that these are important and that everybody will be lifted if, if, if families are lifted, if these poor families are lifted, but also that we have to kind of act, you know, pretty quickly. For sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. God, I have so many questions, you know, so many things I wanted to ask, but I do want to point this out rather than, than asking. You know, when we talk about Congress, you know, you go to some uh, senators or a representative's website and they have list of issues. And, you know, there's the judiciary, there's hunger, there's immigration, there's, uh, you know, you just, the environment, uh you know, gun violence, you can list, you can see the list of all the issues. But what we don't see often is that all the issues are connected. Certainly many of them are. For example, the issue of climate change has a direct effect on our ability to produce food. Absolutely and does. that affects right. immigration, which is why, because in Guatemala, for example, they can't grow their own food on you know, in places where they used to be able to, but can't because it's a drought now. So they come north and that overlaps into immigration. And then you have education, which is one of the ways we feed people. And when we don't have school, we don't, we have to find other ways to feed people. So I'm elaborating, but my point is that we are all connected as humans, whatever our party is, and we are all connected on the issues because the issues are interconnected. And what we need to solve them is the inspiration and the will to say, you know, my life is really busy. I'm struggling to make ends meet and, uh, you know, I've got to take care of my kids and I don't have time to do this. But if you care you will find the time to do one meaningful gesture and it matters. Every meaningful gesture that you can find a minute to do really matters. And that would be my message. And, you know, Carol, um, what you're saying just makes me think about uh, the core philosophy of share our strength and how powerful that is today, almost 35 years later as it was when we started finding just exactly what you said and exactly what you've done. I mean, we believe that everybody has a strength to share, whether it's their business or their passion or their voice or, you know, they, everybody has something to share. And our job has been, and I think we've been, you know, pretty successful at it, is finding, giving people that vehicle. So, you know, whether they're a corporate executive or a singer-songwriter or a chef or a teacher or a business leader or a CEO, we, you know, we help them share their talent and their strength. Uh, and that, you know, that's universal and that lasts forever. So I feel like, you know, whenever we, whenever we attack next, we're going to be able to utilize that same, that same philosophy and that same strategy. Yeah. And, and if somebody, I, 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 if somebody is listening who says, yeah, well, Carol, you know, you've been successful. You don't have to worry about money and Billy and Debbie, you know, you've been in politics and you can afford to do this and everything, but I'm struggling, you know, I'm, I'm, how am I going to help? I can't help. But I also want to say I have seen, you know, even living in the small towns, I, I've seen people who, 
who do live on a budget and who really have to struggle to make their own ends meet. But I've seen them, whether it's in their church group or some community effort, I've seen them say, here, let me turn around because this person really needs help. I will help that person. And so I'm not speaking from the ivory tower. I'm speaking from someone who, as an observer, and also as somebody who once at some point did live on a budget, grew up living on a budget, and early years lived on a budget. I get it. But when, when you find something that tugs at your heart, you, you act. You just do. And no matter what, you, people do. I've seen it. And that's what I'm trying to encourage. Yeah. And yeah. I'm so heartened by all the work you've done and that's with the chefs and the taste of the nation and, and chefs who, whose restaurants closed during the pandemic turned around and started helping people, you know? Incredible. I mean, with the, the way that industry has been decimated, we have had just, you know, consistent um, engagement from chefs who, you know, not everybody can right now, but so many of the chefs have said like, you know, either my restaurant's closed or is closing, but what can I do to help with the community? And in fact, we've done a series of grant making to chefs who have turned their restaurants into uh, feeding centers for the community, which has just been amazing. So many cities have done that with um, support from us. Carol, I'm, I'm, I'm having this, I'm stuck on this mental image of you backstage with Barbara Streisand and James Taylor and Quincy Jones. <laughs> uh, and, and, but, but thinking about that as a time where, you know, it wasn't the, the, the absolute very beginning, but it was close to the beginning of, of a time in which um, people who had talent and uh, had earned so, and gained celebrity from it really were having an impact on, uh, on bigger issues. And I'm, I'm wondering if there are, other uh, leaders or artists in music and entertainment today who inspire you by their activism, or if there's more that you think the community, the creative community and the entertainment committee community could and should be doing, how do you, how, how would you grade it, I guess? Well, I, I would say that people in, you know, not just um, my industry or the entertainment industry, but sports figures and, you know, people who, especially people who often people who come from just simple beginnings, but not limited to because there are people who came from, you know, a, moder a moderate amount of wealth who do who have the heart to do this. I would grade them on the whole really well, because most most of these people, uh, entertainers, I mean, you know, LeBron James comes to mind. Taylor Swift comes to mind. Uh, you you know, almost, not almost everybody, but a fair amount of people use their platform to give back to the community that supports them. And I'm not saying community in the sense of whether it's a community of color or a community, a rural community. I'm saying the people that support them, which could be a wide range of politics. They just want to give back. And I think that I would grade on the whole people very high who have made success, have achieved success. And they do tend to use it to say, well, let me help others. And they and, and that has a, you know, it's almost a ripple effect. It kind of inspires the generation coming up right behind them to do the same thing. It becomes, as we were talking about chefs and restaurateurs, we've seen it become a rite of passage uh, that you're going to get involved in hunger work because so many of the uh, other chefs and restaurateurs uh, that, you know, might've been your mentors were doing something like that. So uh, 
it has an, I think, an even greater effect than sometimes we appreciate. Uh, I, I know we have to start to wrap up here. Uh, Carol, you said a few minutes ago that you, you said, I have to write. I'm a writer and I'm an instrument. Um, what's that look like for you now? Is it, is, is it writing in a journal? Is it writing letters? Is it writing songs? What, what are you up to? Well, I write letters and I write emails and, uh, you know, in that regard. But I, I have started, uh, my, my previous book was a memoir. It was my life. I am writing a novel right now with fictional characters and the, the lead character is not me. We have things in common. I mean, she has another name, but, um, we definitely share a worldview. So I get to express my worldview in a fictional, uh, in a, in a novel. So that's what I've been doing, but that's not forthcoming in the immediate future. I did a first draft and it's, uh, my editor is working on it and that may take a while, but I do write. I, I mean, emails, whatever is needed that day. I, people send me things they write and I make editorial suggestions and uh, I collaborate on things with people. So, but not songs. I'm not really writing new songs. Although there is one that I wrote recently, and I'm saying this tentatively because I believe it's going to be in a movie called Respect about Aretha Franklin, starring Jennifer Hudson. Wow. And I wrote a song with Jennifer and a fellow named Jamie Hartman. And I believe that is going to be in the movie, but that's the only song I've written for a while. That's pretty exciting. Yes, it is. I'm, and it's something I'm, for us to look forward to. Look forward to it. But, uh, you know, as happens in politics, often in the movie industry, you think your song's going to be in a movie and then it's cut or you think your part is going to be whatever. So I'm not announcing it. I'm just saying that song did get written and I'm told it's going to be in the movie. But do not take fine. that as gold. Well, that's fine. <laughs> Hey, Carol, yeah. I, I, have, I have one more um, question about your music. But before I do, I just want to I want to thank you for being a cathedral builder. I'm not sure if you know what that is, but no. So Billy wrote a book. I don't know, Bill, 10. I'm not even sure. Yeah, 20 years now. 20 years ago called The Cathedral Within. Uh, and it you know, it's, it's a book that showcases visionaries and people who have a desire to create something that endures probably longer than their, you know, longer than their own life. Um, because cathedral builders, you know, it took them hundreds and hundreds of years to build a cathedral with the sculptors and the architects and so on. So chances are they wouldn't see their work finished in their lifetime, but it didn't deter them at all. It actually gave them even more energy and more inspiration to finish the cathedral. So the book is about people like you who have spent 30 years. Hopefully you're going to see, and I think you will, you're going to see the, the fruits of your labor um, in your lifetime with the um, uh, Northern Rockies ecosystem protection act but in my book you are you know you you could be in volume two of that book because you put so many years of your life behind this, this film. Well, thank you and i'm i'm glad that you feel that i just want to go back to what i said earlier quickly i'm an instrument i don't feel that i had a vision as much as i am an instrument of god or whatever by whatever name um you know of that which makes things happen and puts things together and it could be random science i don't know but i am an instrument and i don't necessarily have a vision but i see where i'm drawn to serve and well, that is that what instrument i do has endured so you know it it ranks but my my last question for you about music is i i feel like every band or every 
singer-songwriter has a song that was a big hit that totally surprised them. You're like, this is not going to be a hit. Do you, do you have any of those? And which one would it be? Well, it probably would be You've Got a Friend. I never thought this is not going to be a hit. I just never thought about it either way. I just wrote the song, right. and uh, the rest is history. <laughs> it's a good one, too. It's a great one. <laughs> Carol, here's a fun fact to close on. You'll have to tell me if it's a true fact. Uh, we had on the podcast uh, a couple of weeks ago, Sean Cassidy. Oh, yeah. And um, and he was asking who else was going to be on the podcast in the future. And I mentioned you. And he said that you played, uh, you came in and uh, took the place of Petula Clark to, in Blood Brothers to play. And played his mother. His mom. That is true. He's a huge fan of yours, huge admirer. I promised him I would say hello. Thank you. And hello back if he's listening. <laughs> and, and and you know what Sean has done? He has created a wine. He's worked with a great winemaker uh, in California, a man named Steve Clifton. And they've created uh, a, a wine label called My First Crush uh, because he was first crush, obviously, for many people. And, uh, and the wine benefits, every bottle benefits Share Our Strength. And they've sold... The, the hundreds of cases uh, to raise money for our No Kid Hungry campaign. Um, but um, one of the things that got him really excited is when he heard that you were going to be on this podcast. So I wanted to let you know. Thank you. Big smile. That's a great name, too. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. My first crush. Uh, we've been talking to Carol King. So grateful uh, for your work, Carol, and so admiring of what you're doing for the environment, for the Northern Rockies Ecosystem Protection Act. Uh, we've all got our fingers crossed, but we've got to do more than cross our fingers. We've got to actually make sure that members of the House and Senate know how precious these 23 million acres are. And as Debbie said, you've been a cathedral builder. You've devoted so much of your life to protecting this land, which will benefit all of us and our entire environment. So thank you uh, for doing that. And thank you for just being the, you know, the creative force that you've been. I don't have to tell you how many lives, lives you've touched from tapestry on uh, and even before tapestry. So it's uh, it's just a remarkable, inspiring body of work. And uh, we're so honored to be your friends. Same to you. On behalf of my sister, Debbie Shore, who was able to join me today. I'm so glad, Debbie. Uh, and our entire team at Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign. Thanks for listening to Add Passion and Stir. You can go to addpassionandstir.com and find previous episodes and rate them and rank them and subscribe. Uh, share them with friends. Uh, we release the podcast every Wednesday. Um, we'll try to find guests as great as Carol King, but it's going to be hard to set the bar high. Uh, thanks for listening. I'm Billy Shore.